Good morning, and welcome to Trinity Church. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here, and this morning it's my pleasure to lead us in our study of the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our Advent series looking at Christmas for the real world. We're going to be in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 18 this morning. So if you have a copy of the Bible, take it out, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, it's got the text, some space for notes, you can slip up your hand. Dave will make sure that you get one from the back. As you arrive in Matthew 2, and as we come to the penultimate sermon in our Advent series, uh, about to finish up the first two chapters of Matthew, which function as the Christmas narrative, if you will. Dave is going to finish up on Christmas Eve tomorrow night, Um, but this morning we are going to be looking at the middle portion of chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, as we are now only two days away from what the carols and the songs tell us is the most wonderful time of the year. And the hap- happiest season of all. Christmas is a, is a time, is a season of immense joy. It's a celebration of the coming of Jesus into the world, the dawning of hope onto a human race that has been wrecked by sin and death. It's a time to gather with family and friends, retelling memories of Christmases gone by, making new memories that we'll retell for years to come. It's a time to eat rich food and not care about the calories. It's a time to give and get gifts that put a twinkle in the eye. It's time to listen to favorite songs that you have to keep on the shelf for the other 11 months of the year, unless you're one of those horrible people that listens to Christmas music in November. It's a time to celebrate, to be joyful. But, but what if it's not? What if that's not your story at Christmas time? What if you hear it's the most wonderful time of the year and that feels distant? For many people, Maybe some of you in this room, Christmas is something else other than a season of joy. It's a reminder of all those things that you used to have that are no longer there. Perhaps because of the death of a loved one. Perhaps because of hard circumstances that the past year has brought. Something is much different this December than it was last December. Perhaps because of a life in general that just has not turned out the way that you hoped, the way that you dreamed. You wonder, how did I end up here? This is not how I saw my life turning out. You know the season is supposed to be about hope, supposed to be about joy. That's what all the carols tell you. That's what all the people tell you. That's what all the smiling faces that you pass tell you. But you just don't feel it. And when you try to, the happiness that you try to put on, the happiness of those around you, feels just so plastic, such a facade, something that could never actually be really true for you deep down. Well, I've got good news this morning if that's you. If that's you in whole or if that's you maybe just in part. Christmas has good news for you. It is a season of deep and abiding joy. But it also is and has always been tinged and well acquainted with grief. This morning, we're going to look at a piece of the Christmas story that we often just skip over. And quite frankly, a piece of the Christmas story that we'd rather skip over because it's devastating. It's filled with sadness. It's filled with loss. But it's a piece of the story that God included And it's a piece of the story that reminds us that Jesus came into the world not just to slap a thin cone of paint over our grief and over our sorrows and over our sadness, but to dive straight down into them, to wade through them and to come out the other side, plowing a way forward for us in this life and in the life to come. So join me as we read this morning in Matthew 2, beginning in verse 13, continuing the story of Jesus's birth. 
Now, when they had departed, and they is the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's God's word to us this morning. Let's pray as we study it together. Our gracious God, man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, we come to you this morning and ask that what we have not, you would give us. What we know not, you would teach us. What we are not, you would make us by your spirit. For that is our hope, both now and forever. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. All right, so let's, let's reset the context of where we are in this story. Last week, we looked at the story of the wise men, these Persian astrologers who had come from distant lands seeking the Christ child whom God revealed to them through a star in the east. And these foreigners, these outsiders to the story of God, to the story of God's people, came near, pursued Christ, worshipped him, while all the insiders, the king, the religious leaders, were either indifferent or angry and threatened by the arrival of the promised Messiah. And so we pick up with the text this week in verse 13 as they are departing. They're going home. They're going back to their land. But they're taking a detour. They're not going back the way that they came. Verse 13, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Remember, if you, last week Herod had told them to come back. When you find the child, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him as well. But in verse 12, they were warned in a dream by an angel not to go back to Herod, but to, to go back to their home country by a different route. And so they go. They head on a detour back to Persia. But that's not the last dream that's going to be taking place in Bethlehem this night. Because Joseph sees an angel in a dream as well. The angel appears to Joseph and he says in verse 13, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. So the angel has a message for Joseph. Herod is coming. He is going to try to kill the baby Jesus. So get up and go to Egypt. Seek refuge and safety in a foreign country until Herod's gone. Now I want you to imagine being in this situation this morning. You're going to go to sleep tonight. Imagine having a vision of an angel in a dream in the middle of the night saying, your family's life is in imminent danger. Get up, leave, go to a foreign country and live there until it's safe to come back. Can you imagine the fear that Joseph felt when he had this vision? The fear, the uncertainty of what the future holds. And this is a family that's had their fair share of uncertainty in the past few months. And now he's being told, your homeland isn't safe. Get up and go. 
Go to Egypt. Go to a place you don't know with people you don't know and live there to keep your family safe. I think I'd have felt fear. And Joseph obviously feels fear. And he feels urgency because he wastes no time, but he takes Mary and Jesus and the three of them flee under cover of darkness, leaving their home behind in the middle of the night. Look, verse 14. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. There's not a whole lot of emotions that can get you out of bed and leaving your house at three in the morning. I like to sleep, and I'm sure Joseph and Mary with a young kid in the house like to sleep too. But Joseph feels such fear and such urgency that he rises, takes them, and before the sun comes up under cover of darkness, they hit the road. They flee for their lives heading to Egypt. And there they will live for days unknown. We don't know if it was a couple of weeks or if it was a couple of years. But for a time, they're going to live as strangers in a foreign land, far from family, far from friends, far from anything familiar. The young carpenter, his teenage bride, and the son of God, living as refugees in a land that they do not know. Imagine the fear and the anxiety that they would have felt. Fear isn't a word we usually associate with Christmas. Right? It's not something that when, if I were to ask you, if we were going to play family feud, and I said I surveyed 100 people and asked them to associate a certain emotion with the holiday of Christmas, fear isn't going to be on the top five. But it's actually all over the place in the Christmas story. Have you noticed that over the past few weeks as we've gone through here? Mary is afraid when the angel appears and tells her she's with child. She's going to bear the Son of God. The shepherds, shepherds about as rough and tumble a crowd as you would have found in that culture, they're terrified when a host of angels appear to them and announcing the birth of the Messiah. Joseph is afraid. Joseph is afraid to take Mary as his wife, bewildered, confused, fearing the betrayal that he believes she's committed against him. Herod is afraid because he sees a threat to his rule, to his power, to his influence. He's quaking in his boots because of a baby. And now Joseph, in fear, grabs his family and leaves all he knows in the middle of the night. You might not associate fear with Christmas time, but it's all over the place. There's more fear here than a group of teenagers in a bad horror movie. And so what's the message of this? What's the point? The point is this. If you find yourselves full of fears, if you find fear hanging over your heart on a daily basis, the Christmas story has quite a lot to say to you. There's quite a lot here to speak to your fears. In fact, Phillips Brooks, author of A Very Familiar Christmas Carol, said that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, in the child in Bethlehem. So are you full of fears this morning? Fears of the future? Fears of uncertainty? Fears of loss? Of rejection? Of loneliness? Of death? Of your own dirty little secrets that nobody knows about? Welcome to the club. This is humanity. This is what it means to be humans living in this fallen world. And welcome to Christmas, because Christmas came for fears such as these. This is why Christ has come. Because fear is common not only to the Christmas story, but it's common to humanity itself, and it has been all the way since the beginning. Right? God created a world that was good, 
that was free from sin, free from the curse. But as humanity, as our first parents, Adam and Eve, plunged our race into separation from God, what is the first thing that is recorded that they felt? Genesis 3, 9 and 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sin comes into the world. A world is plunged under a curse. It's not as it should be, and our fears spring from that. Our fears spring up and they take roots and they put down in all these different corners of our lives because we live in a world where all is not as it should be. But Christmas announces to us that we live in a world where all is not as it will be. That Christ has come to bring hope. Jesus came into the world in order to face our fears, to triumph over them, and to begin to remake the world into one where fear can no longer hold sway over us. I want you to listen to this from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. The author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, being Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. What is the author saying there? He's saying that we as a people are under the fear of death. We know that our lives have an expiration date. And we're afraid of all sorts of things in this life leading up to and culminating in that final moment. And for Christ to bring hope into the world, he had to become like us. He had to suffer in death so that he could deliver us out of the fear of death. So that he could remove the fear from that final moment, knowing that we have a hope that goes beyond death. And if he can deal with that ultimate fear, surely he can deal with the smaller fears that crop up in our life on a day-to-day basis. And that's what he does by his spirit in the life of the Christian, that we are in a process of sanctification. We tend to think of sanctification as being made more and more like Christ in terms of freedom from sin. I, I no longer do those things I'm not supposed to do, and more and more I do things that I should do. But sanctification also has an element of fear in it. That God is in process of weeding out our fears, of building up our hope in place of that in Christ. 1 John 4, 17 through 19 says, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we love because he first loved us. So what John is saying here is Christ has come into the world. And by this, love is perfected in us, giving us confidence for the day of judgment. We are going through a process where we are being made more and more like Christ. That shows itself in our actions. That shows itself in our attitudes. That shows itself in all manner of things, but one of the things that it shows us in is Christ triumphing over fear. Not all at once where we just repent, we come into into relationship with Jesus, and now we're not afraid of anything anymore. 
But like every other sinful piece of our life, like every other weak part of our life, Christ triumphs over it bit by bit, moment by moment, slowly transforming and remaking us into the image of his son. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love, but he is perfecting us day by day. Fear is a part of the human condition. It's common to us. It's one of those things that we really don't like to talk about, right? We'll talk about a million other emotions before we admit we're afraid of anything. Because fear shows weakness. It shows inadequacy, and we don't like those things. But let's be real. We all have fears. We all have things that keep us up at night, that we wonder about. And that fear is part of what Jesus came into this world to cast out. So if you're fearful at Christmas, if you find yourself thinking, man, 2018 was great, but I'm really nervous about what 2019 is going to look like. Christmas has a lot to say to you. Don't, Don't think that this disqualifies you from the joys of the season. Hear the voice of the angel say to you, like it did to Mary, like it does to so many people throughout the Bible, do not be afraid. Behold, the one who was born and lived and died to deliver you from the fear of death. That is why he came. So they go to Egypt. They remain there, verse 15, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. In that verse, we hear echoes that Christ went into Egypt, but we know he's coming back out. When we think of people going to Egypt and coming back, it can't help but stir to mind thoughts of the Exodus, right? Of the fear and the sadness that the Israelites felt in slavery. But how did that story end? It ended with God leading them in victorious procession out, and Christ is about to lead a victorious procession just the same. But as Joseph and his family head on a fearful flight away from home, many other families in Bethlehem would be confronted instead with a devastating sadness and grief. Christmas speaks peace to fear, but can it speak hope to sadness, to real sadness? If you're one of those people who who is here this morning and you just can't get yourself up with the smiles of the season, can Christmas really say something meaningful and worthwhile to you? to the loss, the depth of loss that you felt. Well, back at Herod's palace, at some point he realizes that the wise men are not coming back. And he's infuriated. He's infuriated that he's been deceived by them, which is rather ironic because he was deceiving them in the first place, right? I'm going to go and worship the kid. And then when the trickster has a trick played on him, he loses his mind. So what does he do? Well, in verse 17, he sends out his soldiers. He sends and kills all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. So what does Herod do? What's he afraid of? Remember, he's afraid of a threat to his rule. He's afraid of this promised king usurping his power, taking his authority. And so he decides... I'm taking no chances, but we're going to go brutal, scorched earth orders to make sure that no king comes out of Bethlehem. And so he has all of the male children, two years old and under, in Bethlehem, killed. 
Sit under the horror of that for just a second. Wrap your mind around exactly what the text is telling us happened. Why on earth would we want to think about this at Christmas? I told a friend of mine at work, she asked what I was preaching on this weekend. I said this passage and I kind of got that look like, oh my gosh, why would you want to talk about this? And quite frankly, myself and Pastor Dave and, and Pastor Tom, when he was here, we had that same thought when we looked at, you know, how are we going to preach this text on, on Sunday morning before Christmas? Why would we want to? What could we possibly take from this awful story, this awful anecdote in the midst of the wonderful Christmas story? Well, the first thing that we have to do with it is we have to believe it. We have to believe the fact that this is talking about real grief and real sorrow and real suffering that actually happened. Many skeptics today dismiss this text. They say that this was something that Matthew made up purely for dramatic effect because there's no record of it happening in any other historical sources, and surely someone would have mentioned something this awful. I'm going to tell you this morning, there's a lot of really good reasons to dismiss those doubts. I'm not going to spend the time this morning to unpack it all because it's a rabbit trail we don't really need to chase. If you're bothered by those kind of assertions, come talk to me afterward. There's lots of stuff that I can tell you, lots of reasons to believe that this actually happened. But for our purposes this morning, I just want to say this to you. Don't be troubled by the assertions of skeptics that this never happened. Be troubled that it did happen. Be troubled that this is not just a story, but this is the devastating reality that some families experienced. Families around Bethlehem were devastated as their helpless children were murdered in front of their eyes. There is no relief. There will be no justice. The ones who are supposed to provide justice are the ones who perpetuated the injustice. This is a hopeless, a bottomless pit that these families are thrust into. Matthew says that this kind of suffering is a fulfillment of a text in Jeremiah, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, in its original context in Jeremiah, this text that is quoted by Matthew is a reference to the mourning of Israelite mothers as their sons were led away into exile in Babylon. Think back to our study of Daniel. This is Daniel and his friends who are being wept over by their parents. And Matthew says here that this kind of grief that's going on in Bethlehem is of the same type. It's the same situation. This is the weeping of parents, devastating sadness due to the horrible and the hopeless loss of children. Maybe you sit here this morning in a pit of that kind of sadness. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've lost a parent. Maybe you've lost something or someone else over the past year that has plunged you into a, a despair that feels never-ending, a sadness that feels utterly devoid of hope. You hear those carols at the beginning of the service, joy to the world, and you scoff at them. How can that be true? Or maybe you just shrink back in ashamed silence. Because you know you should feel that, but you just can't for whatever reason. I've got good news. Christmas is for you. Christmas speaks hope to sadness, even senseless death. You'd be hard-pressed to find a deeper pit of grief than that experienced by these families in Bethlehem. And the coming of Christ into the world is adequate even for that. 
See, contrary to popular belief, Christmas is not simply a season of candy canes, not simply a season of hot cocoa, smiles, nice songs. The Christ child that is promised who came at Christmas is going to grow up not to be a smiley, happy, charismatic Messiah, but he's going to grow up to be the man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief that Janelle read about earlier this morning in our scripture reading. Even here at his birth, the story is soaked with sadness of the deepest hue. Christianity is not a faith of constant and thin happiness. If anyone has told you that, they have lied to you. Maybe it was an ignorant lie, maybe it was a well-intentioned lie, but it was a lie. Jesus told us to expect as much. Read through the life of this child who was born in Bethlehem. Read his teachings, hear it, and you will not come out the other side thinking Jesus is saying we're just supposed to be happy and joyful all the time and life's going to be fantastic. Mark 8, 34 to 35, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, live your best life now. No. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now catch that. Jesus describes following him as taking up your instrument of suffering and execution. Christians are not exempt from the sufferings of this world. In fact, we're told to expect it. We're told to expect that kind of experience in this life. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you would say, you know, being told that is one thing. Actually experiencing it is something else. Well, you're in good company. That was the assertion of author and scholar C.S. Lewis, who is the author of the beloved Chronicles of Narnia series, has written several seminal Christian books. Uh, But Lewis also wrote another book toward the end of his life, uh, a book that is not as well known. And a book that for the first seven years of its publication wasn't even known to be written by Lewis. It's a book called A Grief Observed. And Lewis wrote it after the death of his wife at the age of 45 from cancer. They had been married for four years. And the loss devastated him. And so he wrote this book about his experience of grief and wrestling with it and wrestling with God. And he published it under a false name because he didn't want it associated with him and all of the baggage that it would entail, all the questions that he would have to answer. It wasn't until after his own death, several years later, that the book was republished under his name, and it was revealed who it was that wrote it. Lewis has a lot to say. And he says something, talking about these promised sufferings that Christ gave. He says, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've gotten nothing that I hadn't bargained for. But of course, it is a different thing when the thing happens to oneself and not to others. And in reality, not imagination. Perhaps you're feeling it afresh this Christmas. Perhaps you've been feeling it for years and it never seems to go away. Lewis was familiar with that too. He says in the book, How often will it be for always? How often will the vast emptiness astonish me like a complete novelty and make me say, I never realized my loss till this moment. 
The same leg is cut off time after time. When you feel that kind of pain, that kind of sadness, what are you to do with it? How are you to approach it? How are you to approach joy to the world when you feel cast down over and over into that pit? What was Lewis's resolution? How did he move forward? He discovered and he decided that pain isn't to be masked, pretended away, or hidden from, but that there is a hope that saturates it and that will ultimately overcome it all. He says this in the book, I will not, if I can help it, climb up either the feathery or the prickly tree. Two widely different convictions press more and more on my mind. One is that the eternal surgeon is even more inexorable and the possible operations even more painful than our severest imaginings can forebode. But the other, that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. How on earth can all be well in the middle of that kind of sadness? Because there was a child born in Bethlehem that night that didn't die. He would die 30-some years later under far crueler circumstances. And in doing so, he would save the world. He would offer a hope that can overcome even the deepest sadness He speaks hope into the bleakest, loss, betrayal, death. He experienced every one of them. He is well acquainted with our condition, with our humanity, with our frailty, with our losses. And yet in his great suffering, he purchased for us an unshakable hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life life. It's so simple. This isn't advanced trigonometry when it comes to the Christian faith. This is entry-level basic truth, but it's that entry-level basic truth that changes everything, that gives hope. It's that truth right there in John 3.16 that allowed 19th century songwriter Horatio Spafford to pen these words of hope while crossing the Atlantic Ocean and passing over the spot where his daughters had all perished in a shipwreck just days before. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Again, how can he say that? Well, the next verse tells us, right? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. If you are here this morning and you are shrinking, sinking down in the grip of sadness, let me say to you, please hear me, Christmas is for you. It has hope for you. Not by putting on a smile, putting on a happy face, playing along with the trappings of the season, but by Jesus Christ who gave himself for you, who thought, who regarded your helpless estate and shed his own blood for your soul that you might have peace with God and life forever. 
This God, this Savior who speaks this hope for you, he doesn't do so as one detached, watching from the grandstands as you slunk along down here in the mud. But he entered into your grief. He came down, sunk down into our sadness, mired himself in it, and drank the cup of damnation dry. Think back to what Janelle read for us, to that prophecy from Isaiah, for all that he experienced. He knows, he cares, and he offers hope. He offers a future. Author N.D. Wilson says, Do not fear the shadowy places. You will never be the first one there. Another went ahead and down until he came out the other side. Christ came, died, and rose again to remove the ultimate sting of our sorrows and give us hope that all can be well. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing sadder than death, than the kind of death that these families in Bethlehem experienced. What Paul's saying there in 1 Corinthians is the real sting of death, the thing that makes it a gut-wrenching sadness that can never be overcome is sin, because sin says that death is not just the end of this life, but it's a plunging into an eternal separation from the love and goodness of God. Christ has come and taken that that sting out of death, tossed it away. And so now we do not mourn like those who have no hope. We still mourn. We don't get a ticket to escape the sadness of this world. We still mourn, but we do so differently because we know that there is a hope purchased by Christ that goes beyond all of this. That is what Christmas proclaims to us. If your hope is in this Jesus, then offer others that kind of true hope. Prepare your friends, prepare your loved ones, prepare your children for the reality of life in this world. Don't try to hide away all of the threats, all of the sorrows, but prepare them by saying that there is more than this. That is why Christ has come. Don't wallpaper over the sufferings of this life with a Hollywood smile, but offer your friends and family and loved ones a real joy. A joy that can smile through tears, not in place of them. Again, N.D. Wilson offers this advice on that front. He's speaking particularly about parenting, about raising kids. But honestly, this advice is applicable to the way that we interact and teach anyone, whether it's our kids, whether it's our friends. Wilson says, the world is rated R and no one is checking IDs. Do not try to make it G by imagining the shadows away. Do not try to hide your children from the world forever. Do not try to pretend there is no danger. Train them. Give them sharp eyes and bellies full of laughter. Make them dangerous. Make them yeast. And when they're grown, they will pollute the shadows. That's the kind of joy that we want to have as a church. Not one that's a plastic facade, but one that is deep. One that overcomes grief. Not by pretending it away, but by knowing we serve and are united with one who soaked himself in it, who came out the other side, and who guarantees in doing so that so will we. We have hope. We have a future. So have your hopes and fears found their match in the little child of Bethlehem?
Or are you still living as if some hidden unseen dread hangs out there in the shadows, ready to come and take you away to destroy your happiness? This Christmas, hear Jesus speak peace to your fears and trust him in faith. It sounds so simple. That's because it is. It's really not complicated. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. Bring your fears to him in faith and ask him, Jesus, Father, today, make me a little less fearful than I was yesterday. And he will answer those prayers. He will sanctify you. He will build you slowly, day by day, into the image of his son. Some days, you'll feel it. You'll see it. You'll say, God, I'm growing. Thank you. You'll rejoice. You'll shout it from the rooftops. Some days you won't feel it. Some days it'll feel like you made just the tiniest bit of progress or no progress at all or maybe take a step backward. He's not done. He is faithful. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That includes your fears. That includes your griefs. That includes your sin and your sorrows. That includes everything. Do you carry around sorrow and grief that seems to be an impossible burden? Maybe it seems like a boulder crushing the very life out of you. You don't feel like you can function most days. Maybe you've become pretty good at hiding the boulder in a backpack and walking upright and holding yourself up, and it's not until you get away from everybody at the end of the day that you collapse into a heap in your room. But if you are carrying around sorrow, no matter how good you've gotten at at making it work, See through your tears the child from Bethlehem who bore the weight of the world on his shoulders in order to deliver you from the sting of even sin and death. This Christmas, hear Jesus speak hope to you in the midst of your sadness and trust him in faith. In faith. Weak, trembling, quivering faith, if that's all you've got. It's enough, because he's enough. If you don't know this, Jesus, then may you find your hopes and fears, your grief and sorrows met in him this year for the first time ever. If you need to talk about, how do I do that? You say having faith is simple. Help me understand. I would love to. Talk to myself, talk to Pastor Dave, talk to a friend and a loved one. And let's discuss what it means to follow this Christ. For the rest of us, as you walk through this next week, the season, all the joys that come with it, all the happiness, and all the sadness and grief that you might keep tucked away in a corner, not willing to show anyone, Christ came for that. Christ gives a real hope and a real future. Christmas is for the real world. And this year, I hope and pray that when you sing joy to the world, when you go through all those trappings, you'll do it differently. Because you didn't skip over the gut punch that comes in these verses. Because you didn't pretend away the sadness, but you see Jesus meets it head on. And he has overcome the world. And he invites us to follow in his wake. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you call us out of darkness and into light. 
Thank you that you call us together as we proclaimed from the catechism this morning, that you unite us with one another, that we don't have to carry the burdens all by ourselves, but Christ gives us strength. Our brothers and our sisters hold us up when our knees are weak. Thank you for a Savior who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who walked on water but didn't stride across this world indifferent and above it, sunk down in with us. We have a high priest who has suffered in every way, been tempted in every way, just as we are, except without sin. You promise you can sympathize with our fears. You can sympathize with our sorrows, with our hurts, because you walked in them. God, I pray that you would be glorified in us today. That where we fear, where we feel grief, that you would help us to bring those feelings, those fears, those sorrows in faith to Jesus Christ. Trusting that he is enough. That he gives hope. That he will one day wipe every tear from our eyes. God, may we rest in that this morning. May we glory in that this morning. May you invite someone who does not know that into that great joy this morning by faith in Christ. And Father, I pray for us as a church that you would make us dangerous that you would make us yeast, send us out to pollute the shadows, send us into this world with a message of hope that is real, with a message of peace that is real, proclaiming a Savior who is real. Because we know so many people who need the hope that Christ came to proclaim, that Christ came to purchase. Help us, give us boldness, Give us smiles that are not dampened through tears. Give all glory to yourself and to the name of your Son, the hope of the nations and the hope of our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.